For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how the Mission Garden and the National Alliance on Mental Illness are working together to grow wellness in Tucson. Meet the playwright and the star of American Mariachi, the current production from Arizona Theatre Company. And author Alice Hatcher shares her love letter to the library. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. NAMI Southern Arizona is the local branch of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. They offer support, resources, and understanding to people living with mental illness, as well as their family and caregivers. They're uniting with the Friends of Tucson's Birthplace to host an afternoon fundraiser at the Mission Garden on Saturday, March 16th. It's a chance for the community to explore the garden, and more importantly, a chance to build social connections. The event will feature a lecture on that very subject, as we'll hear next in this interview, conducted by Gisela Tellis. I'm joined by Deanna Lewis, research specialist at the University of Arizona College of Public Health, and Scott Whitley, a volunteer with the National Alliance on Mental Illness and Mission Garden. Now, Scott, you also have lived experience with mental illness. Yes, I live with manic depressive illness. Uh, I was diagnosed in 89, and I felt the need to educate myself about my illness, which I've done. And I've been involved in the community in several different areas, volunteering at NAMI itself as a resource specialist and an advocate, and uh, helping to run peer support groups for people with mood disorders. And how did you cross paths with Deanna? Kendall, community director at um, the Gardens, suggested Deanna for this talk that she would be a good source of information. And I really like the title of her talk because it's broad. I'm so tired of going to talks about medication. The talk is entitled, I Get By With a Little Help From My Friends, The Essentials of Social Connections for Mental Health and Well-Being. Deanna, how did you become interested in the role of social connection and mental well-being, in mental well-being? I've been a user of Tumamak Hill for probably a bigger dozen years. And whenever I've gone on Tumamak, I always think like there's something about this particular space that attracts a diversity of, of uh, folks. And my dissertation research actually stemmed from that experience on Tumamak Hill, trying to figure out like what is it that brings people to Tumamak Hill. So my research sites were Tumamak Hill and a mountain and looking at sense of community and using something called the sense of community index. And what have you learned about how important social connection is to doing well mentally? So we know that social connections um, are incredibly important for our, our health and wellness. But what was um, specific about that is when you look at Tumamak Hill and anyone who's been there notices that it's much steeper than a mountain, and yet it's not a deterrent to people. So it has to be something beyond the physical activity. Um, the particular instrument that, that I use is called Sense of Community Index 2, and it has four indices, and they look at membership, influence, meeting needs, and shared emotional connection. And in my research, what we found is that all four of those indices are important for social connections, and it actually creates cohesiveness, but also it actually, in my study, showed that actually women responded much more to these social connections and these indices. 
Scott, for you, what role has social connection played in living successfully with bipolar disorder? Well, I'll speak about the Mission Gardens. I went in there and I felt a sense of place immediately. I had at one time worked in plant science in my life and I found working with my hands was one of the most beneficial things for changing my brain chemistry. Besides taking a pill, working with your hands can actually change your neurotransmitters. And that's the work that Kelly Lampert's done, Dr. Kelly Lampert at Richmond. And the people there, it's a really understanding group of people. I disclosed after a couple of months there that I had manic depressive illness and there was no judgment, nothing. And I was having mood swings at the time and I disappeared for two months. And I came back into hugs instead of judgment. So I find the quality of people who volunteer there, the quality of people who run the place is a welcoming place and I feel a sense of community there. Something that you touched on is this research showing that physical activity that produces tangible rewards, so things like knitting or tending a garden, can also improve our mental well-being. In the work that you're doing with the volunteer group at Mission Garden, you sort of have the intersection of this social connection and that physical work. So how have you seen that affect some of the other volunteers in the program? Well, there was one woman who came out who had high anxiety and she was cleaning seeds for us because that's what she wanted to do. And I go, I'll just call her Betty. I go, Betty, you really clean seed well. But she looks at me and goes, this is better than lorazepam. And it just relaxed her, you know, by cleaning seed and working with her hands. And being on the porch of the administration building is a great visual place to be. I, I feel visual things are important. And you look out over the skyline of Tucson and the Catalinas, and she... She relaxed there. Deanna, obviously your work is also looking at that intersection because if people are hiking up the hill, then they're physically engaged as well. So in your experience, how crucial is that interplay for enhanced well-being? Well, the uh, intervention site was actually the A Mountain Group. And so we already know that there are literally hundreds of people that walk Tumamak on a daily basis. And so I had some baseline information about what goes on at Tumamak Hill. So it's like, okay, let's see if we create, it was a walking group, and it met once a week. And so we had to literally start off by recruiting people. And the first person recruited into my study was my mom. And my mom's in her mid-70s. She doesn't have as many social connections as I think she should have. Right? And so I've always encouraged her to like be more involved because, again, there's so much literature to speak to the importance of social connections as compared to social isolation. And so when we started this group at, um, at we actually, our base was Mercado San Augustine, what I did is I actually tried to create more connections. And so what we looked at is we did it on a Thursday because you have the um, community food bank of uh, Southern Arizona, their Santa Cruz Farmer's Market on Thursday, right? We know that nutrition is really also important to our health and well-being. So we um, we had some incentives. So people that would walk and they do five walks in a row, they would get a token so they could actually go and shop at the Santa Cruz Farmer's Market. We have El Rio Community Health Clinic right across the street. So our next few participants were actually where people from El, El Rio literally walked their clients over to get them into the group. And so for example, there was one woman who hadn't been out of the house for several months, and it was because she was depressed after her mother had passed. And so a clinician from El Rio walked this person over to the group, and and this particular individual stayed for the entire duration of the intervention. But this walking group now has been going on six months plus after my study ended. 
Have you tracked the group's well-being over time? Their sense of connection must have increased over that time. It it increased significantly. So when we looked at baseline compared the walkers um, that were enrolled in the in the intervention site as compared to Tumac Hill being the control site. Um, at baseline, the people at Tumac Hill had much higher um, sense of connection indices as compared to um, the Sentinel Peak group. And then after the 16-week intervention, there was actually not a statistically significant difference in a decrease over at Tumac Hill, but there was a statistically significant increase in all those indices at all the folks at the Sentinel Peak um, intervention site. It was huge. Deanne has been kind enough to speak on this subject, which I think is a very important subject because I know myself, I take medications, but that isn't all there is to living with a mental illness. It's much more than that. I mean, you need friends. You need to work with your hands. You need to take walks. One of the best things that happened in my life is when I got a dog. And uh, a lot of people talk about cognitive behavioral therapy. I call my therapy DPT. I call it dog park therapy because taking a dog for a walk is a social event. You take a dog to a dog park, you don't learn the people's name, you learn the dog's names. Gisela Tellis spoke with Scott Whitley and Deanna Lewis. The fundraiser for NAMI Southern Arizona is happening at the Mission Garden on Saturday, March 16th from 2 until 5 p.m. Dr. Lewis will speak on the essentials of social connections for mental health and well-being at 3.30 p.m. You can find information at namisa.org. The struggles of a young woman in the 1970s to find her identity, to defy gender conventions by forming an all-woman mariachi band, and to come to peace with her mother's Alzheimer's disease are central to American mariachi. It's a comedic drama that is currently running on the Arizona Theater Company stage at the Temple of Music and Art. Playwright Jose Cruz Gonzalez from Freedom, California, came to Tucson to launch the production, and he spoke with me about creating the story. We were joined by Christian G. Salaya, who acts, sings, plays violin in the mariachi band, all part of her starring role as Lucha. I think what's wonderful about what we're doing in this piece is look at a culture that goes back centuries. But how do you then carry, you know, those pieces from your parents' um, country to a place where you now uh, is is your country, and and what do you hold on to those pieces of culture that are important to you? Hi, I'm Kristen G. Salaya. I play Lucha in American Mariachi. When you first read the play, what was your reaction to this character? I was enthralled. Um, I was going through a time in my life where I was trying to encourage myself to believe that like good things can happen to me. I was really kind of auditing my thoughts and. Uh, And when I read it, I had to train myself to think, you know, you could get that role. So work on these sides, because in auditions they give you sides, which are pages from the scenes they want you to read. And uh, when I approached working on it, I just thought, you know, you love it, you get a chance to work on it for one day, so, like, work on it for that one day, because that one day you get to play that role. Lucha and American Mariachi is our hero. She's a young woman whose father is a mariachi, but he's also a a cook during the day, and so he's trying to keep his family together, um, and he's the primary caretaker. And his wife, Amalia, has got dementia. So everything in terms of caretaking falls upon Lucha. So Lucha's there 24-7 for her mother, but she's trying to go to school as well. 
and the challenges of taking care of a sick parent, you know, the responsibilities of, of, you know, cooking and doing all the things that need to happen. And in the midst of this, you know, she's living in a home where music was played such an important part of their lives and the music is no longer there until one day they find an old record that from her childhood that awakens her mother and thus begins this journey of a quest in fact for her to to find her mother's song how old is lucha lucha's in her early 20s and when you were in your early 20s were you experiencing anything similar did you draw upon life experience to craft her story Absolutely. I think there's a lot um, that I take from my own experience as a, as a young person uh, trying to negotiate living in a Mexican-American household and then, of course, living out in the larger community of the world and trying to negotiate, where, how do I fit in and who am I? And, and I think that there's a lot of that going through Lucha, um, you know, trying to be the, the good daughter, but also trying to find out who you are, discover who you are in the larger world. There's a beautiful authenticity in Lucha in that she's not just one thing. A lot of times as a woman, you're just sort of drowning in tropes. It's, it's, a, it's a really harsh reality of being a performer. Um, but the thing is, is you stick out the hard times for productions like this. And with Lucha, she's both a very warm uh, caregiver. Uh, she's very much uh, motivated by encouraging warmth and good things for the people that she loves but she's also a little bit mischievous i think she has a great sense of humor and what i also love is her authenticity as like a mexican-american something that you see a lot in the way that especially non-latinos portray latinos is it's a very monolithic point of view to non-Latinos, they expect all of us to be fluent in Spanish uh, and to just uh, really know everything about like our parents' culture, you know. And what I like about Lucha is she experiences her culture through the gaze of someone born in the United States. And these cultural things, which I relate to a lot, are very much in your environment, but they're not quite bequeathed to you. Right. So things like mariachi music, like she's grown up around it. You know, it's a big part of her life, but it's not hers yet. Right. And she gets the opportunity to make that hers uh, through the journey of the show. And I relate to that a lot. What kind of role does sisterhood play in your character's journey? And mm-hmm. as, as a woman, how do you feel Jose did in terms of creating those relationships? Did, did it ring true? It rings absolutely true. I see so much of uh, my sister and myself in the relationship between Lucha and Boli. Um, they're traviesitas, they're, they're, they're troublemakers a little bit, but not too bad, you know? There's a lot of um, like the checks and balances that you see in sisterhood. Uh, they, they have, they, uh, they navigate with, with humor and, um, and the way that they kind of play with each other's expectations. Uh, it rings very, very true and beautifully authentic to me. I called my sister up, in fact, and I was like, I can't wait for you to see this. You're going to see our relationship echoed in this play. It's gonna tickle you like senseless.
Jose, give us some idea of what things you use to set your compass uh, in, in terms of authenticity, balancing the need for compression to create drama on stage and also the humor element. In between those things, um, how do you know when you've written dialogue that sounds real? You know, it's taken us uh, almost uh, three years to get to this place where American Mariachi has, has come to uh, really shaped it into a, a really strong story. And um, and there were a number of things that I felt were needed to be right for an audience. One, first of all, you know, I'm a student of Mariachi, not a professional Mariachi. And as I learned the journey of those musicians and, and the life of them, and then discover that women also played an important role, I felt that was really important to tell and to get it right. And so as a student, I, you know, learned from many, many teachers and began to realize whatever we put on stage, we got to make sure that if there's a mariachi there, <laughs> they're going to say, yeah, they got it right. But also exploring this question of Alzheimer's and dementia that crosses over any culture and family. And, and that was something else that I felt we needed to get that right. Um, and of course, then the humor is an, a wonderful way and music is another wonderful bridge to help us go on this journey. Tell me about the era that this play is set in and how you think it made American Mariachi different than if you had set it in contemporary times. I set American Mariachi in the 70s because I think it was an important time where women began to start playing the music here in the United States. And to me, that was revolutionary because this is a tradition that's passed on from father to son, not father to daughter. And to see, as I learned, women playing around this country in Texas and, and California and many other states uh, taking on this music and the challenges of playing this music when women weren't really allowed to play, I thought was heroic and a story that needed to be told. And I feel it also, in a way, can give us reflection upon even the challenges of today with the Me Too movement and everything that we have, we see these pioneers. And this story is also dedicated to a number of those women, specifically Laura Sabrina Cano, who came from my little hometown, who became one of those women pioneer mariachis that would be one of the first to play with men professionally uh, and compete with these men and, and, and help start one of the first all-women professional mariachis in the United States. And when you mention your little hometown, where are you talking about again? Freedom, California. Jose, tell me something about the experience of working with Arizona Theater Company, and how do you think the casting for this play came together? Did you have a role in that? Well, first of all, you know, Arizona Theater Company invited me here. David Ivers, the artistic director, had read this play and was touched by it because he also has his own personal story of a mother having Alzheimer's. And so it touched him as well as touched many of us. But having the opportunity to be uh, auditioning these wonderful actors that we've cast, and I was telling Kristen earlier today that when she came in, there was something about her that just spoke to me as Lucha, as, as well for Christopher, our director. And then she kept coming back and she just kind of had that, that thing that we needed, that spark, that, that heart. This incredible young woman who's about to you know, stand before a tsunami and take it on. What I hope people really see uh, is the arc that this woman has in her sort of complicity and her not kind of fighting back to a lot of societal pressures, and then the slow sort of attainment of this courage 
to really start to speak her truth and to find her voice. Uh, I hope that's something that a lot of people really think about and, and take from this production. I spoke with playwright Jose Cruz Gonzalez and star Kristen G. Salaya. The music was from Arizona Theatre Company's production of American Mariachi, which plays in Tucson at the Temple of Music and Art through March 30th. Then the show travels to Phoenix for performances from April 4th to the 21st. How do you feel about your local library? Six years ago, Tucson blogger Rachel Miller launched an invitational project called Love Letters to Tucson as a way to explore our community through the eyes of others. Now Miller and the Pima County Public Library are inviting the community to share what their local branch means to them. This time, we'll hear from Tucson-based author Alice Hatcher. Her novel, The Wonder That Was Ours, won the 2018 Center for Fiction's first novel prize, which might be a first for a novel narrated by arthropods. My novel, The Wonder That Was Ours, is set on a Caribbean island and narrated by the witty but world-weary cockroaches inhabiting my main character's taxi. The novel contains several flashbacks. One of my favorite flashbacks features my main character, Winston Cleave, is a precocious and opinionated 11-year-old with an overweening curiosity about the United States, where his uncle has emigrated in search of work. A broken-down bicycle handed off by a neighbor enables Winston to escape the confines of his village, visit the only library on his small island, and learn something about his uncle's new life. The following excerpt from The Wonder That Was Ours is narrated, once again, by a collective of cockroaches. On Winston's 11th birthday, Morris conceded victory to emphysema and wheeled his 20-year-old bicycle to the Cleves front stoop. A rusted one-speed contraption with bald tires, the bicycle carried Winston, wobbling and elated, from Stokes Hill to Portsmouth's one-room library and into adolescence and intellectual maturity. Winston spent five years' worth of Saturdays poring over the abandoned books of British administrators and disintegrating Caribbean newspapers that, for years, we nibbled for want of less picked-over material on the library's termite-riddled shelves. He sought out news of the United States, absorbing stories about Black Panthers, campus protests, and political assassinations, and as years passed, a hotel called Watergate and Americans dangling from helicopters in Saigon. In the afternoon, he'd leave the library with bloodshot eyes and ride around the island, refining his thoughts and rehearsing ethical debates with imagined adversaries. Hunched over books and crooked handlebars, he assumed the carriage of a brooding intellectual. Perpetually preoccupied, he ate sparingly. By the time he reached 16, his loose-fitting shirts hung awkwardly from his shoulders. He acquired a premature furrow between his eyebrows from squinting at faded newsprint. Look at him, Topsy said one afternoon, as Winston coasted to a stop in front of his house, the youngest member of this island's intellectual avant-garde. That's the phrase he used the other day. The only member. Morris gathered a pinch of snuff between his stiff fingers. You could learn something from him. He'll be at his pulpit soon enough, telling us what to do. My lectern, Winston insisted, sealing his own fate. Listen to him, Topsy muttered, the professor. Bestowed in the presence of many, the title clung to its reluctant recipient. By the time Winston took his first job, his friends and neighbors regularly addressed him as the professor, with encouraging smiles or dismissive sneers, depending on their attitude towards his erudition, or what some called his airs. Although he's the subject of frequent ridicule, 
my character Winston nevertheless perseveres in learning. He retains into his adulthood the sense of wonder he felt as a child, quote, flying down a road on a rusted bike overloaded with books, carried aloft by fantastic ideas. He never stops learning or thinking about the world he discovered on his library shelves. When I wrote this flashback, I was, in a sense, writing a love letter to the library of my own childhood. Like Winston, I was an awkward kid. In the parlance of the 70s, I was a chunky tomboy who needed to believe there was a world beyond my grade school's vicious playground. I also owned a rusted bike, a dented powder blue Schwinn with worn brakes, a crooked seat, and dangerously misaligned handlebars. Every Saturday, I biked five miles to my local public library. There, I first read Louise Fitzhugh's Harriet the Spy, a brilliant young adult novel about a young girl who spies on her friends and neighbors, records her brutally honest observations in a notebook, and then faces withering criticism when her classmates discover her journal. The book taught me, first and foremost, about the need for kindness and the importance of contrition. By capturing Harriet's joy as she documents the world around her, it also taught me that we are alive as our thoughts, our dreams, and our curiosity about the world. In its celebration of a young girl's creativity, Harriet the Spy provided a blueprint for my writing life. In so many ways, my local library gave me the intellectual tools and creative inspiration I desperately needed growing up, and amazingly for free. When I ran my fingers over my library shelves, I always had the feeling of opening a buried treasure chest and sifting through an endless store of precious stones. The library was a magical place. It extended the promise of infinite discovery. Now, as an adult, I appreciate more than ever libraries' invaluable role in providing free resources to children and adults seeking knowledge, mentors, job skills, and safe spaces for discussion and reflection. At a time when almost everything has its price, libraries ensure that knowledge is freely accessible to all. In this sense, our public libraries play a critical role in our country's civic culture and democracy. Believing that every child and every adult deserves an education, I'm thrilled to be Pima County Library's current writer-in-residence. I have a wealth of resources at my disposal, and more importantly, I have an opportunity to give back to Pima County's amazing public library. Alice Hatcher is the Pima County Public Library's writer-in-residence through April. You can make an appointment through the library's website to meet with Hatcher for free advice to aspiring writers. You can also read more love letters to the library and find an invitation to write your own at library.pima.gov. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.